Chapter Eight of Monsieur Le Coq, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. Monsieur Le Coq by Emilie Gaborion. Part Two, Chapter Eight. Only those who in the bright springtime of life, have loved, have been loved in return, and have suddenly seen the impassable gulf open between them and happiness, can realize Maurice d'Escorval's disappointment. All the dreams of his life, all his future plans, were based upon his love for Marianne. If this love failed him, the enchanted castle which hope had erected would crumble and fall burying him in the ruins without marianne he saw neither aim nor motive in his existence still he did not suffer himself to be deluded by false hopes although at first his appointed meeting with marianne on the following day seemed salvation itself on reflection he was forced to admit that this interview would change nothing since everything depended upon the will of another party the will of monsieur lacheneur the remainder of the day he passed in mournful silence the dinner hour came he took his seat at the table but it was impossible for him to swallow a morsel and he soon requested his parents permission to withdraw monsieur d'escorval and the baroness exchanged a sorrowful glance but did not allow themselves to offer any comment they respected his grief they knew that his was one of those sorrows which are only aggravated by any attempt of consolation. "'Poor Maurice!' murmured Madame Escorval, as soon as her son had left the room, and, as her husband made no reply, she added hesitatingly, "'Perhaps it will not be prudent for us to leave him too entirely to the dictates of his despair.' The baron shuddered. He divined only too well the terrible apprehension of his wife. "'We have nothing to fear,' he replied quickly. "'I heard Marianne promise to meet Maurice to-morrow in the grove at the Reche.' The anxious mother breathed more freely. Her blood had frozen with horror at the thought that her son might, perhaps, be contemplating suicide. But she was a mother, and her husband's assurances did not satisfy her. She hastily ascended the stair leading to her son's room, softly opened the door, and looked in. He was so engrossed in his gloomy reverie that he had heard nothing, and did not even suspect the presence of the anxious mother who was watching over him. He was sitting at the window, his elbows resting upon the sill, his head supported by his hands, looking out into the night. There was no moon, but the night was clear, and over beyond the light fog that indicated the course of the Oiselle, one could discern the imposing mass of the Chateau de Sermus, with its towers and fanciful turrets. More than once he had sat thus silently gazing at this chateau, which sheltered what was dearest and most precious in all the world to him. From his windows he could see those of the room occupied by Marianne, and his heart always quickened its throbbing 
when he saw them illuminated. She is there, he thought, in her virgil chamber. She is kneeling to say her prayers. She murmurs my name, after that of her father, imploring God's blessing upon us both. But this evening he was not waiting for a light to gleam through the panes of that dear window. Marianne was no longer at Sermus. She had been driven away. Where was she now? She, accustomed to all the luxury that wealth could procure, no longer had any home except a poor thatch-covered hovel, whose walls were not even whitewashed, whose only floor was the earth itself, dusty as the public highway in summer, frozen or muddy in winter. She was reduced to the necessity of occupying herself the humble abode she, in her charitable heart, had intended as an asylum for one of her pensioners. What was she doing now? Doubtless she was weeping. At this thought, poor Maurice was heartbroken. What was his surprise, a little after midnight, to see the chateau brilliantly illuminated? The duke and his son had repaired to the chateau after the banquet given by the Marquise de Courtenieur was over, and, before going to bed, they made a tour of inspection through this magnificent abode in which their ancestors had lived. They, therefore, might be said to have taken possession of the mansion whose threshold Monsieur de Sermus had not crossed for twenty-two years, and which Marshal had never seen. Maurice saw the lights leap from story to story, from casement to casement, until at last even the windows of Marianne's room were illuminated. At this sight the unhappy youth could not restrain a cry of rage. These men, these strangers, dared enter this virgin bower, which he, even in thought, scarcely dared to penetrate. They trampled carelessly over the delicate carpet with the heavy boots. Maurice trembled in thinking of the liberties which they, in their insolent familiarity, might venture upon. He fancied he could see them examining and handling the thousand petty trifles with which young girls love to surround themselves. They opened the presses. Perhaps they were reading an unfinished letter lying upon her writing-desk. Never until this evening had Marshall supposed he could hate another as he hated these men. At last, in despair, he threw himself upon his bed, and passed the reminder of the night in thinking over what he should say to Marianne on the morrow, and in seeking some issue from his inextricable labyrinth. He rose before daybreak, and wandered about the park like a soul in distress, fearing, yet longing, for the hour that would decide his fate. Madame d'Escorval was obliged to exert all her authority to make him take some nourishment. He had quite forgotten that he had passed twenty-four hours without eating. When eleven o'clock sounded, he left the house. The land of the Rachet are situated on the other side of Oiselle. Maurice, to reach his destination, was obliged to cross the river at the ferry only a short distance from his home. When he reached the river-bank he found six or seven peasants who were waiting to cross. These people did not observe Maurice. They were talking earnestly, and he listened. 
"'It is certainly true,' said one of the men. "'I heard it from Jean-Louis Nau himself only last evening. "'He was wild with delight. "'I invite you all to the wedding,' he cried. "'I am betrothed to Monsieur Le Chinoir's daughter. "'The affair is decided.' "'This astounding news positively stunned Maurice. "'He was actually unable to think or to move. "'Besides, he has been in love with her for a long time. "'Everyone knows that.' One had only to see his eyes when he met her. Coals of fire were nothing to them. But while her father was so rich, he did not dare to speak. Now that the old man has met with these reverses, he ventures to offer himself, and is accepted. "'An unfortunate thing for him,' remarked a little old man. "'Why so?' "'If Monsieur Le Chigneur is ruined, as they say.' The others laughed heartily. "'Ruined?' "'Monsieur Le Chenor, they exclaimed in chorus, "'how absurd! He is richer than all of us together. "'Do you suppose that he has been stupid enough "'not to have laid anything aside during all these years? "'He has put his money not in grounds, as he pretends, but somewhere else.' "'You are saying what is untrue,' interrupted Maurice indignantly. "'Monsieur Le Chenor left Sermus as poor as he entered it. On recognizing Monsieur Descorval's son, the peasants became extremely cautious. He questioned them, but could obtain only vague and unsatisfactory answers. A peasant, when interrogated, will never give a response which he thinks will be displeasing to his questioner. He is afraid of compromising himself. The news he had heard, however, caused Maurice to hasten on still more rapidly after crossing the Oiselle. "'Marianne, Marie, Jean-Louis, he repeated. "'It is impossible! It is impossible!' End of chapter 8 Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway The 29th of October, 2011